David, welcome to Scotonomics. Um, during the um, 2014 referendum campaign, I was actually studying for my degree and uh, had very little time to read the newspapers, which I, I do normally read them a lot. But I was picking up um, generally that there was a, a, a negativity um, about independence uh, or rather Scotland becoming an independent country. Um, would you say from your research that that was kind of the overall feeling? Yeah, I mean, certainly the way that you <clears throat> you introduced that and described that there, Karen, um, is a, a perfect example of one of the things that come that, that appeared in my research, is that um, even though there was a focus by the newspapers on the economic aspect of the, the reporting, and, and even more so, there was um, definitely a disproportionate number of those stories were looking at the potential or speculative negative consequences of independence. But it's interesting that you said that you talk about a sort of subliminal influence or this passive influence that the media can have. Your example talks to one of the things that I mentioned in the book and the fact that even if you're not a, a daily consumer or a daily purchaser or even a, a regular purchaser of a, um, of a newspaper, you can still be influenced by these media messages. Um, um, in the course of just one morning, you could easily pass several outlets which sell, which sell newspapers or you could be sitting, for example, in public transport next to someone else who's reading a newspaper so without you ever having picked one up or spent any money on one or having actually engaged in it. But especially if something is on the front pages in bold letters, um, that is something that can have a passive influence on you, even when you don't realise. And I think your example um, is uh, is perfect in that regard because it mirrors what I've heard from several other people who were living in Scotland at the time, not huge or regular consumers of the media by any means, but they had this almost sense of impending economic doom and purely that was i think largely was because of the the repetition and consistency of this negative economic message in the press but the the more revealing thing um to just to speak to your own example the more revealing thing is that this can actually in, in, uh, impact or influence the thinking of people who never actually um explicitly or actively engage with the media and they can still be uh, affected by it and you state that there was a dominant theme of uncertainty in the press discussion on the economy of an independent Scotland. The, the notion of uncertainty, or the, uh, how else would you describe it, the, the theme or the concept of uncertainty was almost ubiquitous through the, the press coverage of the referendum. Um, and that, that applies to virtually every outlet. Um, there aren't really any exceptions in this Obviously, regard. You're talking about... Um, economic projections which are five years ten years or more down the line most of it is at the very best informed speculation but the the contrast and the the, the telling aspect and um, i think revealed itself from our research is that the speculation emanating from a pro-independence position was given far more critical treatment than the speculative opinions which were emanating from um the better better together uh, campaign for example or um, businesses or think tanks or the like that were connected to the no campaign in some regard um, and again it's there's a there's a sort of common sense belief which I think is is a little simplistic as a lot of people who have a, a more negative impression of the media and their influence 
talk about how the media will lie. They'll just make things up. And for my research, it's not actually like that. Is what it is is yeah. the the manner in which things are framed and the the way they are presented to you can give a false impression of truth rather than it being a, a direct lie. If you can understand the contrast, so it's um, and obviously you know if you're in high school and most of us the way the way we grow up, you're never really taught to read or. or or engage with the media in any um, critical sense. You're certainly not taught it in school to, to you know look beyond the headlines and look what sort of agenda or editorial bias might be um, underlining that to some regard. So the fact that you know someone who has you know been a, a, um, a consumer of newspapers their whole life. Um, and they see it as a trusted, reliable news source. If day after day after day they're seeing in bold headlines, page after page, that you know this banking group has has set, um, voiced their concerns over independence, this supermarket group have said something in regards to the cost of living. When it builds up and it's consistently used, I, I, I can't really blame your sort of general audience for being affected by this because we're we're sort of conditioned and raised to assume that the newspaper is a trusted source for these things so the fact that they present these things and frame these concepts which again are essentially just informed speculation at best that they can um, present it in a way that makes it out that it's not in speculation it's more a, a demonstrable fact that's what can have a very negative impact, I think, on the, the general process and people's understanding of the economic debate. Yeah, I guess for the newspapers as well, you know, it's important for them to have headlines that sell. And so the other thing that you uh, observed as well, that there was there was a lot of um, name. There were a lot of names from the energy and banking industry being granted front page exposure would you th do you think that that was that was quite dominant <clears throat> it was it, it didn't happen all the way through the process but you did see it with a lot more regularity especially in maybe the last four or five weeks leading up to the referendum um where again you know the concerns of uh, business groups like uh or, or business or economic entities like bp shell john lewis these well-known names um the their their concerns over these future projections and again is there was a lot of um there was a lot of that appeared on the uh, front pages with in very few instances was there actually even inside you know on the editorial page or on the, the comment section most of these claims were taken at face value and weren't um critiqued to any great degree it would that is occasionally that that's not to say that the claims from the, the oil industry or the banking industry in every instance went unchallenged. Um, <clears throat> some columnists in uh, the likes of the Herald and occasionally some columnists in the Sun would, would challenge some of the more like overtly catastrophic negative um, uh, projections. section of the newspaper which was far more, or where it was far more prevalent to find either positive um, projections for independence or uh, and aspects that were more critical of the negative reporting of independence that cropped up in the letter sections far more. But the thing is, is and this is purely speculation on my part, is I can only assume that the the letter section is probably one section that most people who even consume a newspaper probably don't read with as much frequency. Whereas the likes of a, an editorial or especially a front page is something which will get noticed. So it's not that there was absolutely no coverage which painted um, Scotland's economic prospects in a potentially positive light, but they did tend to be 
restricted to only a certain few titles, and even in those instances, it, it was further restricted to either the occasional comment piece or um, in a lot of instances to the, the letters section. Um, the, the peak of business coming out against Scottish independence, you said in your book, was around about the 11th of, of September, just mm. before the vote, and, um, and that saw BP and Shell throwing their weight behind Sir Ian Wood, who's currently a lot in the headlines at the um, moment. Remarks of Ian Wood, uh, Sir Ian Wood at the time were interesting. And again, it comes back to my previous point about the, the lack of criticism uh, or the lack of critique that was levelled to some uh, commentators or <coughs> you know, business elites at the time. Um, and Sir Ian Wood's one of the key one of the key examples of that is because of his his warnings about you know this sort of dire future in this dying industry. Um, again, that received front page coverage, received an awful lot of editorial space and comment. And again, the overriding trend is that he was essentially taken at his word. And of course, he is an industry leader and he's an industry expert. But uh, one, just take his word on what will be the case 10 and 15 years down the line seems quite um, naive in a regard, because how could he how could he actually realistically know these things? And beyond that, um, the, again, the only times that he was really directly critiqued was in the um, was in the letters pages. As occasionally somebody would say, you know, uh, why isn't it being raised? The fact that so Ian Wood, despite comments to the the contrary, is very well connected to the Better Together campaign. So it's not like these um, statements of his appeared in a vacuum or just because of some. Uh, professed desire to better inform the public of the economic debate. There, there was, I would assume, at least some political agenda to it. But in the reporting, the way that Sir Ian Wood's comments were um, were, uh, were analysed and reported, they were really just taken at face value and given an awful lot of um, uh, given an awful lot of coverage, um, both in terms of like quantity and the number of newspapers that appeared then, for which were essentially just the, the speculative comments of one individual. What I found quite interesting, David, about specifically the Ian Wood comment about um, Scotland running out of oil in 30 years, which we'll put up on the screen for the audience, was that the, the newspapers reported it as an independent Scotland would run out of oil in 30 years. And I always found that a little bit peculiar. Oh. I an independent Scotland would run out of oil quicker than an than a Scotland and still in still involved. That's, in, no, that's, in, a, that's, a, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, that that's that's true. They did always try and frame it in those in, in those terms. That's a really interesting observation, why? Yeah, so so I think that will, certainly doesn't prove anything, but it certainly alludes to an agenda because mm. it was specifically saying this will happen in Scotland. Um, and it won't happen as part of the United Kingdom. Well, I think it tied in with a larger trend is that obviously, you know, what was what would take place in a in the Scottish economy both after independence and and even just in the transition period from a, a potential vote to when it actually happened, which could be you know several years, if um uh, if if not you know possibly more than a decade. It's it's all speculative, but one of the um aspects that. If you were even just a, a very passive uh, consumer of the news, is that you could be easily forgiven for believing that the sky was going to fall in if Scotland became independent? Not because, uh, because it was, <clears throat> because virtually any aspect of um, personal or national finances that could be affected, it was reported and reported double page spreads, front page news, often given editorial and comment um, validation as well. 
And that could be anything from mortgage prices, um, pensions, household bills, um, house prices, <clears throat> um, almost anything that could actually affect the, your average person's finances would be in some way affected. And it was generally said that all of them would be affected negatively. But obviously, I don't have to explain to, to either of you that that's not really how an economy works. And, and really, it's not that, like, you know, one, you know, some things go up, some things go down, and there's this constant state of flux. It's not that there's just a dramatic day where everything, you know, uh, goes to pot. But that was the impression it was getting. A more cynical aspect, and this, this this is one of the few times where I think either the journalists or the contributors who said things like this might have been taking a bit of taking a bit of a liberty and perhaps deliberately misrepresenting what they knew to be the case. Is as much as it's a minority of coverage, there are instances where output gives the direct impression that if Scotland were to vote yes the things like people's pensions or bank accounts would be worthless on the 19th of September, like it would happen overnight. And that um, and that was one of the things which I think directly worried some people was this idea that if it didn't happen overnight, maybe in the weeks or months after independence, the uncertainty would lead to, you know, mortgage payments going up or, you know, you know your bank account suddenly being uh, worthless. And that, that aspect all feeds into a wider trend, which... If you were going to generalise as to how the newspaper industry in Scotland and the UK discussed economics as regards um, uh, a potentially independent Scotland, the vast majority of it um, frames independence in a negative sense. That is so interesting because mortgages could have gone up, but they also could have come down with an independent Scotland. But what you're saying is there was never really any analysis of that, of that, that um, kind of sunny uplands or, or the positive side. That's fascinating. But one example that did come out at me was the idea that um, that supermarkets would have to raise their price, they would have to raise their prices if Scotland were independent. And this was said to be, ju- this was reported as being justified because of logistical reasons, transport costs, etc. But in none of the reporting, uh, despite the fact that the likes of uh, Asda and Morrison's and whatnot had said this would likely be the case, there was no discussion or even um, mention of the fact that in a, a capital, you know, in a in terms of sort of supply and demand in a normal capitalist marketplace, if some uh, out say Asda and Sainsbury's start putting up their prices, there's other ones such as like Tesco or Lidl will put down their prices. It's not that every supermarket, because there's obviously always going to be a market of 5 million plus people who need to buy their groceries. So all of it, so there's going to have to be uh, companies that would service this demand. But again, a way it was occasionally reported in the, the press was that should Scotland become independent, you wouldn't be able to get a pint of milk. And if you could, and if you could get it, it would, you know, cost you 10 quid or something like that. And it, it sort of skirted over a very... I would say a, a sort of basic understanding of how a, a marketplace on the you know in the high street and in terms of household groceries actually works. Yeah, I mean for me it was really noticeable that that particularly because I come from a family who were involved in the oil industry as well that they didn't they they didn't take the word of uh, Alex Kemp who's the professor of oil economy at Aberdeen University he's a friend with my mom and my dad <laughs> and he is the expert on this. And, you know, I couldn't see his name anywhere. So the press were taking uh, the word of someone who has obviously um, a, 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 a stake rather than a, an academic and more neutral approach to thinking about this. 
So that that seemed, for me, that seemed a very illogical way to go. But largely, and to to mention Professor Kemp as a, as a good example of this is. What what it really comes down to is based on the editorial <coughs> underpinnings or the editorial agenda of a newspaper is essentially determines what expert you will talk to. You know, if, if you know if you can find an expert who will say exactly what you want, then you will propagate that. And if there's someone else who's saying something opposite, it's not you don't have to denigrate them. You don't you just ignore them. You just don't mention that that's part of the conversation. And that's the most common way. And then. If, Several of your journalists are also re referring to, you know, for example, uh, Sir Ian Wood. If they're, they're describing him as a, you know, a titan of, of the oil industry, a captain of industry, you know, a, a world-leading expert. You know, for someone, your average reader who doesn't really either know who he is or know what his standing is, if you have these trusted voices telling you that this is someone you should listen to, this is their credentials, and you repeat it and you repeat it and you repeat it, you do convince people that their opinion holds weight. But as um, you're alluding to, Karen, there are several on any issue to do with the referendum, whether that's climate, defence, the economy, health, anything, there are a variety of experts out there who have varying opinions, all of which might be based on just as much research and, um, and work being put into that. But whether or not these people get the same platform because of what they're saying is a completely different matter. And that's probably one of the main ways that the media can in many ways act as um, gatekeepers for, for the dissemination of political information. So it's not, as I said, it's not necessarily ever really the case that newspapers directly lie, but the way that they present things to you can have a huge impact. Yeah, and I think that's got a wider um, uh, influence as well over our democracy. I mean, for me, I really understood a couple of years ago that how people don't understand how our economic system work has has a wide range range ranging effect on our, our democracy so has this obviously as well and um i i do despair at the the lack of um you know intellectual parity um in the newspapers i i feel that they have actually a public duty to present some sort of intellectual parity but obviously that's not the case I think, you know, what I, I worry about as well is that the uh, the papers that are ostensibly saying that they're left wing and the papers that they're saying the right wing are, are actually saying the same things or they were on this issue or that's what it seemed to be to across, me. Across the board out of the, the, the eight newspapers that informed this study, so that was the... The, the Scot in each instance, it was the Scottish version of these newspapers. So it was the Scottish Sun, the Daily Record, the Daily Mail, the Daily Express, the Times, the Telegraph, the Herald and the Scotsman. Um, so that's eight separate newspaper outlets and none of them were explicitly or overtly uh, pro-independence. Obviously, the only example in Scotland at the time was the Sunday Herald, which came out, um, but that, that didn't inform the study. I didn't look at the Sunday newspapers. Um, and out of the, as, as far as I remember, out of, of those eight newspapers, the only one which didn't explicitly advise or encourage its readers to um, vote uh, vote no, and it's a, a, as an, a, a, an explicit editorial column was the Scottish Sun. Um, so when you take sort of um, consensus, if you want to call it that, across right, left, you know, English title, Scottish, or UK title, Scottish title, and um, no, you're, you're completely right, but that has to have an impact on surely the, the terms of the democratic debate, because if most outlets, um, if most outlets, um, whether that be uh, 
you know, television is one thing, but in the newspaper industry, if most outlets are all saying the exact same editorial line, then that, I think, has to um, be to the detriment of the de democratic process because you're not getting as, as wide a variety of opinions and approaches as you could. So it means that, as you mentioned, there might, there might not be a sort of intellectual parity um, there with the, these, the producers of news and with the, the consumers of news. Um, and uh, to go back, and I know it's slightly off the 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 specifics of the economic question that you raised, uh, Karen, but when you actually look at the press as a whole, and this might sound quite cynical, but when it comes to things like a referendum and where there's a certain um, uh, a political agenda being pushed, is in several instances, especially in the news report sections of newspapers, a lot of reporting... At the, at the very best, has turned some journalists into little more than stenographers for either political parties or political interests. Because when you read what counts as a news report, it's quite clearly based on a PR um, release by um, you know some some politically connected group. And then you might get a couple of um, you know response quotes, and usually those response quotes further emphasize the framing. Of that, or further emphasise the agenda of that news report, and that again, I think, also undermines the democratic process because it means that only certain certain groups have access to this particular soapbox, if you want to, if you want to call it that. And in the in the, the example of twenty fourteen, um, those who were connected to Better Together obviously had far more avenues to disseminate their message than people who were related, who were associated with the Yes campaign. And while the Yes campaign might be able to put out PR reports, you know, um, to the, and it might get some play in the likes of the Herald, maybe the Daily Record at a stretch, or possibly the Sun, it's not going to get anywhere near the same as a negative report about independence that's put out by Better Together, and it instantly knows that it can potentially get front page and editorial coverage almost automatically in the likes of the Express, the Mail, the Telegraph, the most centre-right, conservative leaning explicitly unionist newspapers and i think all these factors taken together probably do undermine the democratic process because it, it muddies the waters in term in the terms of debate whereas um, i agree with you Ken, as i think that to a degree the press probably should have some responsibility to to um inform the public um and is in a, in a balanced and um and way in a way that's not impartial but unfortunately that's what that the, the newspaper industry isn't bound by any such thing to, to stick to that and they're not supposed to be impartial um, and that's in some ways that's a selling point for some people the, the renewables were hardly mentioned and obviously this mm. is a huge resource for scotland but the precarity of the, the oil supply was certainly um mentioned a lot if we if we take sort of renewables and oil and bring them both under the the same banner of um, energy resources, again I'm just I'm I'm picking this off the top of my head, but I would assume that if the, the what was it um, what was being discussed was Scotland's energy resources, ninety five easily ninety five percent plus, the focal point was oil, and as you mentioned. The, the supposed lack of it or, or future scarcity of it. But um, it was one of those things that I didn't actually, I didn't specifically go looking for when I first um, when I first embarked on this research and it just sort of appeared to me through its, um, uh, by its absence, really was, yeah, there's the, 
virtually no discussion of renewables whatsoever, whether that's wind power, tidal power. So this is a significant thing not to cover when you're talking about energy. Yeah, I found it quite strange that it was overlooked um, to such a degree. And it, even in those occasions where it would be discussed, it would be in, you know, like a, a, a smaller news article, you know, buried on the inside pages. It was never, it was ve- it was never given, for example, um, much like in, by way of editorial coverage, or you would never get like a major columnist devoting an entire um, an entire piece to to um, energy beyond um, the discussion regards oil. And I think it's something. Should there be another referendum, or should the independence question become a live political issue? Again, in the next few years, um, I think that is something which will probably be slightly different from the coverage in 2014, especially, you know, for example, with Scotland hosting the the COP26 um, uh, conference, that does shine a renewed light on the issue of uh, climate change. And I think these issues will get probably not, I don't think they'll dominate the debate by any means, but I think they'll get more coverage proportionally than they did in uh, in 2014. And um, economics was covered pretty ubiquitously across the um, eight papers that you looked at. What we are seeing happening at the moment is that a lot of coverage of the climate is being covered by business editors or economics editors, and this is climate. And I was wondering what happened around about the referendum. Was it the economic correspondents who were talking about the economy, or was it being covered by all these other kind of correspondents who it looked like must have had some kind of knowledge or or, or expertise in the economy. Apart, it's, it's a really really interesting question, William. Um, it's I suppose without um, exaggerating the case from from my reading of the sources, certainly in 2014, everyone in Scotland was apparently a professional economist, especially people who were um, who were professional um, columnists or opinion piece. Writers is um, while by by no means can I actually speculate or hypothesise on um, how much understanding various journalists would have in these. Of course, there were there were journalists who have more of a um, more of an established uh, an established career in reporting on economic issues, but especially those who are on the um, political beat, because you know if you're on the political beat, you're still going to be covering. You know the budget or various government things. So, so discussing economics seems to go hand in hand with political correspondence to a degree. But beyond that, um, there were people who aren't even necessarily like prof- um, professional journalists. It would be more like guest columnists or you know MPs or the like who were providing material. And in these instances, yeah, I think some of them were either being uh, dishonest, either with the audience or themselves in terms of their own grasp of, of economics, especially on like a national or international level. Um, but yeah, you touched on something which is, is, is very hard to miss, is the fact that like everyone seems to be able to, not only everyone seems to believe they're very well, well, uh, well versed in economics, but beyond that, and this is either, I don't know, is it uh, hubris or I don't know what the, the, the right term might be, but the amount of people who seem to be incredibly sure of what Scotland and the UK and the global economic system was going to be like five years down the line, ten years down the line, is quite remarkable. And we only have to look at the massive changes that have happened in the, the last couple of years as a result of a completely unforeseen uh, global issue 
is to show that all those kind of like those models and whatnot aren't really worth the paper they're written on. But that doesn't at the time that by no means deterred countless commentators from saying with a you know bizarre degree of certainty what an independent Scotland would look like in 40 years, for example. Uh, the other thing that you mentioned as well was that perhaps austerity had primed the fertile soil based on uh, on existing fears post-2008. Do you want to say some more about that? This is more, rather than the sort of like media analyst side of me coming out, is this is maybe more my historical training trying to look at this, is even though even though it's only seven years ago, which is both is and isn't a long period of time comparatively, is in the context of 2014, the um, the financial crash had happened 2007, 2008, which is still, you know, in, in fairly close living memory um, for, for people. Um, but beyond that is following their election in 2010, is up to the point of the referendum in 2014, there'd already been four years of conservative-led austerity. Which had led to you know you know you know library closures, various services being taken away, you know um, various financial safety nets and, and things that that had helped people and people in 2014 as a result of that crash and as a result of government policies were were demonstrably struggling. So it meant that if, if you've been going through a period where you're already worrying about your household bills or how you're going to pay for this, how you're going to cover this, if the news if the press then. Uh, almost collectively say, well, if you embark on um, independence, all these things are going to get worse, as you can completely understand why some people might be um, receptive to that sort of, if you want to term it, that sort of fear-mongering, because it's playing on people's existing anxieties. You know, if you... If you're already in a position where you know you have to stretch your household budget to the max, or you know you are struggling to make ends meet, then being told that your household bills are going to go up by thirteen hundred a year, your mortgage is going to go up by two thousand a year, you know those are very very real concerns. Um, and for people at you know every stage of their life, that could be students, people who are young families, eld- you know um, elderly people, um, any number. And again, the fact that these, I think that sort of negative economic that doomsday style reporting would have had an impact at any time because it always does. But given the historical context of when it happened, so this post-2008 and especially post-2010 period is, yeah, the for the the sort of like roots of that particularly thorny rose to grow, there was fertile soil there because that it was something that most people would experience and had had to endure by that point for the better point of almost five years or more. Well, as long as you've got um, governments of any colour which are going to stick to this um, this programme of austerity, is it's going to tighten household budgets, it's going to make people more desperate and it's going to make them more receptive to these type of negative economic messages. And I would speculate, but I would be fairly sure that should there be should there be another referendum in the next few years, the economic question again is going to be pushed right to the front. But now the, the similar arguments that were made in 2014 are going to now be presented as having even more weight because if the argument is that like Britain is in so much collective debt that Scotland can't afford to be independent, well, the UK is in infinitely more collective debt in 2021 than it was in 2014. So if people believed that argument or accepted that argument then, it's going to be more convincing to them now. And given you know the various things that like it's public knowledge that the impact of the coronavirus pandemic and various things, you know, having to fund the health service adequately to combat it 
the furlough scheme, bounce back business loans and various things, is this whole process has cost the UK a lot of money and that is what a lot of people are aware of. So it means that should there be another referendum, that very simple um, but for some people frightening message of essentially Scotland simply can't afford independence because of recent history, um, that might be, an, well, might be, um, I can almost guarantee that that will be a, a dominant narrative factor. Should there be another referendum in the next few years, they'll, they'll link Scotland's poorer economic prospects to the coronavirus pandemic. Well, I hope that me and William can do something to debunk that um, with this programme. And that's that's my hope and my prayer, <laughs> I have to say, as, as a rampant atheist. But um, the, the other thing that you brought up as well was the underrepresentation of women within the, the debate. Um, and the youth thought that really uh, women's voices need to go up by a factor of four. Um, before the next referendum, in some instances, in some in some newspapers, uh, that that would be the case. And unfortunately, it's something I only managed to sort of glance over in the book because I'd already written an article called um, it's called Who uh, Who Writes the News, and it's, you can find it in Scottish Affairs. It's, it's free to find it. Um, and yeah, if, looking at it, um, and I, most of that is on a purely statistical basis. So purely looking at who, you know, quantifying how many news articles there was, comment pieces, letters, and then sub-quantifying that by the apparent gender of who wrote it. Um, and in most instances, the, the discrepancy between male and female contributors is enormous. I mean, some in some newspapers, like the... Um, some newspapers, especially, it's more pronounced than the more centre-right newspapers so i don't know if that's because there's some sort of like ingrained boys culture or whatever someone could speculate on but across across the board you're really looking that about maybe between 25 and 30 percent of all newspaper coverage is produced by women which is hugely disproportionate given that women make up roughly 50 percent of the population and i think that that has to have an impact to go back to an earlier question, I think that has to have an impact on the 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 the, the way in which the democratic process um, unfolds and the way it, it's the way it happens. Because if again, I've always said that this might seem a really naive or idealistic way to look at this, but one definite positive from the referendum process for me was that it encouraged a, a sort of debate on a national level, which hadn't really happened before in my lifetime, and that's shown by you know the voter turnout and the, you know the fact that people are just talking about it all the time but if in a the public sphere such as the or a public forum such as the newspaper industry if women's voices are so demonstrably and evidently marginalized that has to have an impact on the frames the frame of the debate and i don't think it can be seen as a proper national conversation if 50 percent of the population are being deliberately marginalized for, for whatever for whatever reason so moving forward i would hope that should this um become again i would i would hope that there are more female voices um in the debate because i think that can only be a good thing well I, of course i'm going to agree with that <laughs> um yeah so you would say on the whole you think that there was an imbalance in the coverage there was a there definitely was an imbalance in terms of um, the degree to which uh, negative stories about independence got um, far more coverage and far more 
um, prominent placing. Again, if that's through like on the front pages and whatnot. But an aspect of this to bear in mind is newspapers, as much as we we spoke about this earlier and we, you know, from an idealistic point of view, it's something which you would want the industry to aspire to or to, to achieve. There is nothing, um, you know, a newspaper, the newspaper industry is not under any obligation to be balanced. Right? If they want to be partisan, so long as they don't print outright lies, it's not, um, it's not out with their remit. Uh, to do that, and so, so what I would instead of <clears throat> instead of wishing for this like utopia or this nirvana where the newspaper industry does uphold uh, everything that we would want it to, and it's perfectly balanced and it's and it's um it's completely impartial, that isn't the reality we live in. And for if I was going to give someone like advice on how to handle the media or how to interpret the media is. Is maybe not to reject it completely, but is to always be aware that these the newspapers, far more so than, for example, television news, is they're allowed to be impartial. In fact, they're actually encouraged to be. Some of them, it's their business model. You know, you only have to look at the editorial line of the likes of the Daily Mail or the Daily Express, as they cater to their audience. So the so newspapers, um. Whilst not being encouraged to, they are by default and the way the industry is now, they are impartial. So there might well be, of course, there is this huge imbalance in the report and in and, and the specific example we are talking about, there was a huge imbalance towards reporting, which you would say was more often than not more beneficial to one side of the debate. But that's to be expected. It's certainly not something that's going to change dramatically should there be another referendum, but I would hope that some people might be at the very least a bit more aware of these um uh, of these impartialities and because and by being so perhaps be a bit more critical and self-aware of what they're reading and not just taking it at face value. David, I, I went through two referendum campaigns in a short period of time because I live in Catalonia and I was oh, here for the twenty seventeen referendum. And, and looking at the media coverage of the referendum and the build-up to the referendum in Scotland and to Catalonia was very different. And, you know, you may be aware that the Catalan um, printed press is much more balanced and there's a lot mm. of publications which are in favour of Catalan independence. But the one striking difference that I wanted to bring up was in the context of economics. And even the um, pro-keeping part of Spain newspapers would have never led with the idea that Catalonia could not survive or thrive as an mm. as an independent country. Because they, they, they tried this, they tried this at forums, they tried it in some of the papers and the TV programmes, and they were just shouted or laughed off the screen. Because the idea to a Catalan, even if you're pro-independence or pro-Spain, that Catalonia couldn't survive or thrive as an independent country was just seen as a completely impossible situation to start from because they looked across Europe and saw smaller countries who had less resources, less population doing really well. So it was just kind of straight away, just it, it was closed off as an argument. And that meant that the conversation was much more about what type of economy would Catalonia have? How would it be? How would its relationship be with Europe? What would it do with taxation? How would it do with corporate governance? And what I found in Scotland is we never got to that level of conversation about what, 
of economy. We never got to speak about taxation, corporate governance, well, you know, a well-being economy. We never got to that point because we were all having this false discussion about whether or not Scotland could do it or not. So that was my big observation from those two independence referendums. And I'm wondering, what can we do as not a pro-independence movement per se, but what can we do as a democracy to try and have much more conversation about the kind of economy that we can have rather rather than this inability to run our own economy should we be part of the United Kingdom or as an independent country? Um, I, I think it, it has to start almost from a grassroots level so that first you have to prepare people so that they know the basic things that you're talking about so that they understand currency so that they, extant, they, they understand amounts of exchange and, and very, just all the little building blocks that build up to an understanding of how a modern economic system works because if people don't have those those type of things, the the notion of like sort of like macroeconomics can actually be uh, seem quite overwhelming and quite alienating. And because of that, if someone's overwhelmed by the the concept of, of some sort of like economic model or um, economic or fiscal process, that may in turn make them more susceptible to the more negative style of reporting. Because if you don't really understand it then if they just say you don't understand it but trust me you'll be worse off if you don't really know any better most people will probably err on the side of caution like if i, if I you know if i don't know any if i don't know one way or another but most of the sources are telling me that i'll be worse off then if i don't have another reference point or the tools to challenge that then you're far more likely to lean that way we know that there was a lot of coverage of the smp not being too sure about what currency scotland mm. would have how was that reported and, and is there any way of looking at what kind of influence that had? In terms of as much as the wider economic debate and um, whether that was, you know, oil or how you fund the health service or pensions, any of these kinds of things, or even just household economics, um, without having quantified that, I would say the issue of currency was the defining economic issue as, as presented through the press. Um, it was it was an ever-present, but it, it became almost the you know the sort of smoking gun if you want to describe it as such um after the first televised debate between alistair darling and alex salmond where alex salmond was a largely a judge to have not really given a particularly good um account of himself particularly on currency and in the days after that and um and in the weeks after that which led up to the referendum the lack of answers or um, the supposed lack of answers and the smp's lack of sure-footedness on the currency issue um, really played into the hands of um, especially the more unionist press because um, it, it allowed them, if if, Sa if it was presented that Salmon couldn't give a, a, a definitive or convincing answer on the issue of currency, then it was sort of presented that the whole house of cards begins to fall because if you can't uh, get the issue of currency correct, then it was presented through the press, then anything else related to that, which is everything else in an economy, by necessity, also is on very, very shaky ground. Yeah, when um, out of all the economic issues that were that were discussed, the issue of currency, like one hundred percent was the most dominant issue. And usually when it was discussed, it was discussed in negative terms that either Scotland could have a um um if Scotland had a currency union and it wouldn't actually be independent. Or um, <clears throat> another thing that happened with a fair degree of frequency was a sort of dismissive tone of what a potential um, independent Scotland's uh, own new currency 
would be, you know, there'd be references to it being, you know, sort of a Panama pound or, um, or you know, people would say, oh, are they going back to, like, are they going to the drachma or the grout, the Scottish grout and things like that. So, in, so instantly giving this impression that a Scottish currency even would, would instantly be worthless. Um, and again, this all feeds into this greater notion that regardless of what, which way you cut it, Scotland would be um, in economic decline post-independence at the very best and at the very worst it would be in the midst of an economic catastrophe on the level of um you know the you know something like you know the the, the great the great depression or the the crash from 2007 2008 and and that yeah so that's the the in answer to your question william yeah in terms of in terms of anchoring the fears uh that were being generated and propagated Towards the the current towards the economy in general, the currency question was the key the key anchor there, and it, it was repeated ad, ad infinitum. Well, there's such a lesson to be learned, isn't it? That if there is another referendum, you know, in the next couple of years, the idea that we can go again with not having a really clear idea of what we are doing with the currency um, is going to undermine. Uh, a, a referendum, I think it's a really important point. And um, I just had one final question for you. Did anyone mention the um, the Darien disaster when we were talking yeah. about Scottish economics? Yeah, yeah, exactly. A nice, uh, a nice contemporary reference for the uh, informing in twenty fourteen is that they, yeah, they, they, they did, um, and not, not by any means. You know, you would have to go looking for it, but in a few instances. Um, especially, it came up in one or two comment pieces, but especially turned up in uh, on the letters pages would be, you know, this idea. Um, <clears throat> if any of my fellow Scots are, are, are thinking of voting yes, may I remind them of the Darien calamity, and, and then it would go into, you know, the, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the colonists, you know, dying of malaria and what, and it would go into like very kind of graphic detail of how essentially the idea that they wanted to present was. If Scotland tries to go its own economically, it doesn't work out well. And despite the fact that this this example was, I mean, what are we talking, three, 324 years before 2014, something like that? And when you put it into that context, um, the fact that that was being referenced and, and being some way seen as like any way legitimate to the discussion of, of a modern, like industrialised, uh, globalised economy, you know, was was baffling to me, but yeah, and, and unfortunately, unfortunately, yeah, the the Darien uh, the Darien scheme did actually get mentioned on occasion, and uh, usually, uh, well, probably always uh, without exception, from people who weren't exactly that pro independence, if I put it that way. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's interesting as well that the currency was presented in a in a way that is somehow it would be primitive. You know, when you're talking about the Scottish groat or you know the Panama pound, that somehow it would be obviously it would be rubbish. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, that again, it's that that speculation that comes from nowhere, really. Um, it's a very simple. You know, the, the the language they used each time might have been different. The way they framed it, the hypothetical examples might have changed from from time to time but or, or instance to instance but the the main thing the that they were trying to say at least in relation to the currency is for all you know um on the 19th 19th of september your money won't be worth anything and, the th and as much as that you know when we're discussing this here it's almost um it's almost like um such a ridiculous concept that it can be easily but the things if you don't have if you don't actually have any other frame of reference or any grounding 
and economics and ev and every source is saying this to you day after day after day that like well if it's not if it's not your pension it's going to be worth nothing it's going to be your holidays are going to cost more if it's not your holidays your mortgage payments are going to cost more and if it's not that it will be your household bills like it would be when when uh, when that's repeated and repeated and repeated you can see how it managed to sort of that idea managed to um, implant itself into a lot of people. Um, and again, even people who might not necessarily consume the news by literally buying a newspaper, it could just be this passive influence that can filter in just for the course of an average day. Yeah, so I, I think that we've kept you for long enough. And, uh, no, I think it's, uh, no, I've really enjoyed them. That's <laughs> <laughs> great, yeah, because we have as well. It's been absolutely fascinating to go through what the press representation was at the time of the referendum and, and to a certain extent how uh, imbalanced it was, how for me, really unscientific it was, unrepresentative in many ways, especially when you're talking about the imbalance between women's representation. That's really interesting. Um, it's been a fascinating discussion, David, and thanks very much for giving us your time. No, thanks, thanks very much for having me on, guys.